to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Bible, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, and we are continuing our study that is entitled, the series called Dear Church, looking at the seven letters Jesus wrote to seven literal churches found in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And uh, these are letters that, although they were written some 2,000 years ago, man, they are very applicable today. And uh, what Jesus has written to these churches, he has written to the church today. And uh, so it's something that we can apply to our lives. And I believe these are direct words to you and I. And I'll tell you that. I'll explain why in a second. So stand with me, if you would, please. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. Where Jesus writes, or where Jesus speaks, John writing, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty. You are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning, God. We thank you that it was a word written specifically to a literal church. But it is a word that is also written to us today. Your word never returns void. It is applicable. It is timeless, Lord. It is relevant to us. So we ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts directly today through this letter and that you would help us to have the ear to hear and the heart to obey what your spirit would direct us to today. So we humbly come to you, Lord. We ask for your spirit to lead us, to speak truth to us, to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, last week, if you were with us, we considered the first seven verses of the book of Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus entitled a sermon called, Dear Church, Love Again. And he spoke to the church of Ephesus. Told the church of Ephesus that they were doing a lot of great things, but there was one thing that they were lacking. They had left their first love. He reminds them that they are to remember where they fell, to repent, and to return to the first works that they once did. What a great message it was. If you missed it, you can pick it up um, on our website, or you can pick it up on iTunes or Google Play under Calvary Chapel, and, or you can wa watch it on our Facebook as well. But uh, it is a very relevant message in a period of time, which I believe that the church is growing cold in love. So if that's you, then that message is for you, and you want to listen to that. Today, we will consider the church in Smyrna. It is considered the suffering church. So if you're suffering today under some circumstance in your life, then this message is for you. Jesus wants to encourage you. He wants to bring comfort and peace to your heart today. And so may you receive it. The, the title of my message is Dear Church, 
Be faithful. Be faithful. And we know that when trials come in our lives, when difficulty comes, that's when we can really tell where we are in life. It's called testing. Uh, I started a dietary supplement company several years ago, and one of the things that I really cared about was the quality of the ingredients. The only way that you can really tell the quality of an ingredient is you have to test it. There are multiple different ways to do that, but if you really want to know that what you're putting in, whatever it is that you're, you know, you're, whatever we were making as a dietary supplement, if we really want to know what the ingredient is, we had to test it. We had to examine it. We had to look inside of it to see what it was made of. Now, there was one particular test that we could use to visually look at the product. It was called an organoleptic test. And it, you used the senses, you know, you used sight, uh, the appearance of the product. What color was it? The smell of it, the taste of it, these kinds of things. But here's the thing. That test could not tell me if this product was really what it was supposed to be. The only way that we could do that is we had to break that product down. We had to use solvents and machinery to be able to identify exactly what this product was. And so we would put it, put it through a process to examine the purity of the product. And it was the only way that we could really be sure that we were using what we were supposed to be using. The same is true for metals. You know, it, you can't examine a, a piece of gold from the outside to see if it is genuine. You have to look on the inside of it. You have to melt it down. It has to go through a process. In fact, what they do is they melt that metal down, whatever it is, and they, the impurities come out in it. And you can tell what it is. You can tell the purity of, of the gold or the metal, whatever it, whatever it might be. You see, none of this can happen without testing. And there is a testing method for just about everything. And in fact, there is a testing method for the church. Jesus, uh, the testing method that Jesus uses for the church is called trial and tribulation. And the point of the trial and tribulation for the church, the testing that Jesus puts us through, the purpose of it is to reveal the purity of heart, to, to, to examine the heart, to see where we really are. And in fact, isn't it true that we don't really know where we are until we experience a little bit of pressure in our lives? Until Jesus puts a little heat under us, we don't really understand what's in our heart. When things are going great in my life and I'm coasting through life, I think I'm doing pretty good. Maybe you're with me on that. But when things, when trials come, when difficulties come and it starts to get hard, things that are inside of me begin to come out. You may know what it, what it, how that is. External pressure pushes impurities out of our heart so that we can see them. That is the point. Perhaps yours is a temper. Maybe some explicit language. Maybe it's vindictiveness, pride, envy, strife, tribulation will produce the impurities. They will, it will reveal those impurities in our hearts, and they're necessary to be revealed. Why? Because Jesus' whole goal in your life is to present you as a spotless lamb. Now, understand that it's not about your works. Let's just get that straight right now. It is not about your works. It's about his works, what he did for you on the cross. But yet there is a process that we are going through as Christians, as, and that's who we're speaking to today as Christians, that Jesus takes us through what's called sanctification. It's the process in which we are being made pure. He's revealing the nature of our heart to us, the vileness and the darkness that still maybe exists, and he wants to change those things. He doesn't, Jesus will not coexist with darkness, folks. He wants to get rid of those things, and so he takes us through a little testing to help us understand. It's not for him, it's for you. 
He understands the purity of your heart. He sees you from the inside out. He has analytical eyes. And he can judge the appearance. He, just by simply looking at your heart, he understands the purity of it. But the purpose of testing is for us to understand where we are. And if you're like me, maybe you, uh, you know, think you're a little further along than you are, and then the, the Lord reveals that to you through some trial and tribulation. So, and, and, it's, and I'm thankful for that, to be honest, because I need to see that. I, need, I want to become more like Jesus. And if I don't know that there's things underlying in my heart that need to be revealed so I can deal with them, then I can't do anything about it. So Jesus wants to help us understand what's really going on in our heart. And he cares about your heart. He cares about what exists in your heart. And that is the entire purpose. This church in Smyrna was a suffering church. They were going through lots of difficulties. They were going through hardships that you and I might, may, you, you may even question your faith over it. This church was faithful. And he calls you and I to be faithful in the midst of suffering. Suffering has a purpose. And don't ever overlook it because it is very important for us. Suffering produces a Christ-like character in our lives. And that is the point of it, folks. And so if you're here today and you're going through something, the Lord has a word for you. Dear church, be faithful. Be faithful in the midst of your suffering. Jesus begins by simply a simple introduction to this church and also a description, as he did last week, and he will do the weeks following. It's very simply the way that Jesus speaks directly to the angel of the church in Smyrna, and he writes this description, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Again, the letter is written to a literal messenger in the church of Smyrna. The, the, the messenger, it is, it is probably most likely the pastor of the church. It says angel. That word can be translated messenger, probably pastor or leader. Most likely, it is written directly to a fellow named Polycarp, which I will talk about later. Polycarp was a disciple of John who John uh, sort of appointed as the pastor of this church and most probably the person that received this letter. So keep that in the back of your mind. Notice the description that Jesus gives of himself to this church that is suffering. He says, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that the description that Jesus gives here comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. And the, the, the very, it's really a title of deity here where he's speaking about the first and the last. It is an Old Testament depiction of God who is above all other gods. There is no God like him. He is the first and he is the last. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no other God. He is God above all gods. There is no God that he is matchless in his power and might. There is no God fashioned with hands or, or, or in the demonic realm that can rival our God. We need to understand that today, folks. We even just went through uh, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 last, a couple weeks ago where we looked at spiritual warfare. Who's really in control here? Jesus is. 
He is the first and the last. And make no mistake about who is speaking here. It is Jesus Christ. He is declaring himself in this depiction as God, the God of the, as Jehovah God, by the way, the God of the Old Testament. He is God, and he is declaring himself as God here. Not only that, but check this out. He also declares himself as the one who died and who lives. He is declaring that not only the deity of Jesus, but also he is declaring himself as fully human, that he died and that he rose again. This is Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. He came. He is the first and the last. He existed uh, before the world began. In fact, he created everything that existed, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. He created you. He created everything that exists. And in fact, the word of God tells us that it's by Jesus that everything is held together. Jesus Christ is God, but he has also become a man. You know, before the foundation of the world, God made a plan for you to be redeemed. And it was by way of Jesus Christ. We're reminded in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Tabernacled, that's what that word dwelt means. It literally means he came to live with you and I, to dwell among us. Why? So that he could save us so that he could be our Savior. Why do we need saved? Paul explains this to us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. He says, and you, that's you, that's me, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, the problem was you and I, the, the word here is past tense, we're sinners. We're, 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 we were separated from God, from our sin. We are considered saints now. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. He paid the price for your sin past, present, and future, you see. As it sits today, you know, positionally, you are righteous before the Father. You might not feel righteous, but you are. If you are in Christ, and that's the, the premise you have to understand is if you're in Christ, you have a genuine relationship with Jesus, not just as Savior, but listen, as Lord. He must be Lord of your life. He must be in control. It's what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus where you have relinquished all rights to him and you say, Lord, I want to make you my Lord, Lord of my life. Is he calling the shots in your life today? Is he directing your steps in what you're doing? I'm not saying you would do it perfectly, but he must be Lord, understand. He came to pay the price, though, and he did through the cross that he shed his blood for you and I so that by grace through faith we could be saved. That is why he came. This is the gospel. I love how Tim Keller writes this. He said, this is the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in our, ourselves than we dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than ever dared hope. That is the gospel. That we are incredibly sinful. But Jesus Christ is incredibly loving that he would lay down his own life for you and I. God loves you today. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel. 
It's not about who you once were or who you are today, but it's about what he has done. He paid the price. We put our faith in Jesus. And if you do that, let me just say this, your life will change. You will not be the same person. The Bible declares that, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. All is, you know, he's become new. All the old has passed away, he's become new. Now, why would Jesus depict himself as the first and the last, the one who died and who lives again? Why would he do that to this church, this suffering church, this church that is being faithful, this church that is pure? Why would he declare himself as such? Well, to answer the question, we have to look at the background of this city. We have to understand what was going on historically in the city so that we understand why Jesus represents himself as such. And that is the, really the, the, the form that you'll find in every one of these letters is that Jesus, he, he, he describes himself in such a way as to, to reveal himself as the Lord over whatever the situation is going on in that particular church. And in this particular case, Jesus is telling us that he is Lord over all, that he is Lord, period. And there's a reason for that. The, the, the city of Smyrna is found today, it's the only one of the seven cities that actually still exists today in modern-day Turkey. It is the city of Izmir. Still exists today, still, still going, still the most Christianized uh, city in, uh, in Turkey there. Smyrna was, was located just 35 miles north of Ephesus, again on the Aegean Sea. It was a port city, much like Ephesus, and it was also self-governed. It had its own, you know, army. It had its own, um, although under Roman rule, it had its own currency. Now, it wasn't quite the city as Ephesus and Pergamos in, in terms of economics and the political side of things, but it was a very wealthy city. It was a very important city to the Roman Empire. Its claim to fame was that it was its natural beauty. Smyrna was considered the glory of Asia. They were very, very proud of that title, so much so that actually on their currency it read, first in Asia in beauty and size. Smyrna was noted for being a center for science and medicine. It was also hosted a famous library and a stadium. It also had the largest theater in Asia. This kept the diverse population of 500,000 or so people very well entertained. Religiously, Smyrna was a place of extreme idolatry. In fact, there was a city there in Smyrna called the Golden, or a street there called the Golden Street. And along this street would be all these temples built up where, where they would worship various different Greek gods, Apollo, Aphrodite, uh, Zeus. It also included a temple that was built to worship the emperor of Rome, Caesar. It, in fact, it was one of, it was the, all, the very first city out of 11 cities to be granted by Tiberius, the emperor of Rome in 23 BC, to build a temple to worship uh, uh, the, the Caesar. It would, continued on. Domitian made it a, a requirement for all Roman citizens to worship Caesar. And if you refused, you would be put to death. How would they know if you worshipped? This is a very similar situation as Nebuchadnezzar back in the, the Babylon where, you know, Daniel and the boys had been taken over captivity and they said, you're going to worship this statue of, you know, and, and, and they wouldn't do it. What happened to them? They died. They, they, they were going to be put to death. People died for that. God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Daniel wasn't in the fire that day either. So here we, we find the Lord's going to do the same thing here. But, but here's the thing is this place was a place of extreme uh, Caesar worship and idolatry. They would give uh, every person a certificate. They would come. They would literally have to say these words, Caesar is Lord, offer some incense upon the altar, and they would be issued a certificate that said that they comply to their duty every year. Christians had a problem with this. How can I declare Caesar as Lord? There is only one Lord. There can be only one Lord of your life, and it's not you, and it's not Caesar. It ought to be Jesus. Amen? So he tells the, these, these guys had much issue going on there in the city as a Christian. It would be difficult. Not only did they have the the idolatry of the Greek gods to rival with. Not only did they have Caesar worship to contend with, but there was also a very large population of Jews there in the city of Smyrna, which created much havoc upon the Christians. The Jews also would be persecuted later, but during this time, the Jews and the Greeks all were coming down on the Christians in this city. They were helping, uh, they, were, they, were, they were persecuting the church extremely. Now, it's not coincidence that the, the city of Smyrna literally means myrrh. You know, the spice, myrrh, it is a burial spice that they would put upon it. It's literally a picture of death, this city. Christians were giving their lives up to serve the living God. They were giving their lives up to be Christians. When John wrote this letter, most of the church had been persecuted to death, folks. There wasn't a very large church at the time. And you can imagine being one of the few left in that city and receiving a letter like this that says, hey, be faithful, be faithful. I wonder if that won't be our fate one day as a country. We're already seeing political things happening, movements in our, in our country to where there is very anti-God very anti, um, you know, the Bible, very anti-truth. We're, we're seeing this happen, folks. In fact, California right now is experiencing this, and, and they will continue to, to deconstruct. They, they will implode from the inside out as they continue to make these rules against the Lord. There's a bill there in California. It's been out there for quite some time. It will come surface now that the elections are over, and it will be passed, I'm sure. And it is a bill that will call anything, even biblical speech, hate speech, against any kind of sin, including homosexuality. And so if you speak something truthful from the Bible in the state of California, there will be penalties for that. And understand, that will continue to sweep the nation. It is the sign of the times. It is the reality of where we live today, folks. This stuff is going to continue to happen. You know, it happened 2,000 years ago in all, pretty much all of the known world. Why do we think it won't happen here in our country? We are a post-Christian nation, folks. We are not a Christian nation any longer. We hope, to be, we hope that the Lord creates a revival. And we hope that he sparks something. And it can start with you. It starts with every individual. But hopefully he will spark a revival in our country. But as it sits today, understand that there are more people against God than that are for him. And in fact, statistically speaking, only about 2% of our population truly believes what the Bible says. 
So that's a very, very small group of people. And we know that, you know, I, I believe firmly one of the things that is holding this country back from just going head over heels into complete debauchery is the small remnant of Christians that are standing true, that are being faithful. In fact, the Bible tells us that, you know, when, when God, re God removes uh, the spirit from, the, from the, this world, that is when the Antichrist will be revealed. And I believe that is a picture of the rapture, when God re removes his church. And that will happen, folks. But, but it's not coincidence here that John is writing in a, into, in a situation where, uh, into a city that literally is a picture of death and that the Christians are being persecuted tremendously here in Smyrna. The only way that these people will be able to endure the hardships that they face is to keep their eyes on Jesus. And that has not changed. That is the very thing that we need to do in every circumstance in our lives. I don't care what it is. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, if you get your eyes off Jesus, you'll fail. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, he will strengthen you and he will see you through. You keep your eyes on Jesus. I wonder if we need to be reminded of that this morning. Jesus reveals himself as first and last, as Lord over all. Maybe you need to be reminded today that he's Lord over your situation. Like whatever you're going through in your life or whatever you will go through or have gone through, he's allowed you to go through it. And not that he produced it. Don't, don't misunderstand. God doesn't produce evil, but he uses it. Well, we see this in the Bible. We see this with Joseph. This guy was betrayed by his own brothers, sold into slavery. Then he, then he, he gets himself to a place where he's, He's finally, you know, kind of worked himself up. He's worshiping the Lord, continuing to be faithful in the midst of his circumstances. And then he gets accused of trying to sleep with his master's wife, and he gets thrown back in the prison for a second time again. Nobody knows the troubles I have. You know, he's singing. No, he's not. He's being faithful even in the midst of his hardships. And what does he do? He interprets a dream. God gives him the ability to be used even in the midst of his negative circumstances. And he interprets this dream, which eventually gets him an audience with Pharaoh, which he becomes second in line. That was God's plan, folks. Certainly didn't look like he thought it was going to look, I'm sure. Maybe you're going through something today that doesn't look like you thought it would look. But understand, God is in control. Perhaps we need to be reminded of the words of Joseph, that he spoke to his betraying brothers, to their faces, he said, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God had a plan. Does God still has a plan in your circumstance and situation? You don't know what he's going to do. So you trust him through it. And sometimes trusting him through it means you grab on to him and you, you're just, all you can do is hold on and you just keep holding on to him. Maybe you need to be reminded of the man Job who after losing his family, all his wealth, everything that he had, it says in Job chapter 1 verses 20 through 22, then Job arose and tore his, clo uh, tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. 
And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You thought Matt Redman wrote that. He did not. <laughs> it's in the Bible. Job wrote that. Matt Redman made a song about it. So we could sing that today. Blessed be the name, the name of the Lord, no matter what you're going through. Job understood that God was in control of his circumstances, and God was bringing about something. And, and it's an incredible picture at the end of his life, at the end of the, 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 the documentation of his life. Anyhow, we see that he's blessed tremendously, way further than he had before. But God took him through a journey, and it was a difficult one. He never promised you it would be easy. He never said, come to me, and it'll be a simple path. No, in fact, the Bible says that it's a difficult road. It's a difficult path, and it is a difficult path. But it's a doable path if you keep your eyes on Jesus. It's a doable path. The question is, are you doing that? This church in Smyrna, although they were facing heavy trials and tribulations, they were standing firm in their faith. They had watched many, many people be martyred for the Lord, and they were standing firm in their faith, so much so that Jesus commends them for that in verse 9 there. He says, I know your tribulations, your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Notice Jesus says, I know. These are very important words. Sometimes we move past these simple words that really we don't think have a lot of depth and meaning to them, but these two words have incredible depth and meaning to them. I know. Jesus is speaking in first person of personal experience. Of what? Of tribulation and poverty. Jesus Christ knows what that's like. He's been there and done that, man. And in fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen, he knows what you face. He knows your challenges. He knows your needs. He knows all about rejection and heartache and ridicule. He's been there. He knows what it feels like to love somebody that doesn't love you back. He knows what it feels like to reach out to somebody to have your hand slapped away. He knows what that's like. He knows everything that you will go through. Perhaps you're depressed. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows. Perhaps you're sad and Jesus was acquainted with grief. You may feel despised and rejected and oppressed and afflicted. Hey, listen, he knows. He's experienced these things. He can comfort you because he's been there. He's gone through these things. He comforts the brokenhearted and the contrite spirit from a place, listen, of personal experience. Jesus experienced everything that you've experienced to a far greater degree, to a much far greater degree. Listen, we don't have a God who, who is trying to lord us from a distance. He came and got right in the middle of our situation. He came down and he got in the trenches and he went to the front lines for you and I. He knows what you're going through. He knows specifically about this church, Smyrna. He knows about their tribulation and their poverty. In fact, their tribulation is responsible for their poverty. What do I mean? The word tribulation means pressure that crushes. It it's the, depicts the idea of a, a grain being processed into flour, being ground down. It, the idea of, 
of grapes being turned into wine where they are just mashed. That is that word tribulation. It means pressure that crushes. This church was under tremendous tribulation from the culture. Again, they faced it in three different forms. They faced it from the general citizens who were worshiping the Greek gods. They faced it from the, the, the Roman imperialists who were worshiping Caesar. They faced it from the Jews who said they were Jews and are, were not. They were Jews by name. They were not Jews in heart. They were not spiritual Israel. They were physical Israel. And that exists today, folks, where you just have national people, national Jews that are, you know, they were, their, their origin is from Israel, and they are national Jews, but their heart has no connection to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no connection. They must become spiritual Jews. It is not about a nationality, folks, and don't ever misunderstand that. Just because a person is a Jew doesn't mean they'll be saved. They must, they must come to Jesus Christ just like you and I. And in fact, the Old Testament pointed them to Jesus all through the, um, all through the, the law and the prophets. It pointed to Jesus. And anyone who understands that is a Messianic Jew at this point. And there are few. Because the hearts of the Jews are hardened. Their eyes are partially blinded. It's not that they can't come to Christ, it's that they won't. You see, the, the, the Christians in this culture, they faced wars on every front, every side. They had religious wars going on. They had political war going on. They had just like you and I do. It's the same situation, folks. Probably a little bit graver in their circumstances, but certainly not graver than our brothers and sisters who live in the Middle East who are experiencing all kinds of, uh, you know, persecution. In fact, Open Doors Ministry reports that 215 million Christians experience high levels of persecution in the countries in the Middle East and throughout the world. Listen, this represents 1 in 12 Christians worldwide today that are experiencing high levels of persecution. There's a list on their website of the, um, of the different, various different countries that are in, you know, that are in levels of persecution for Christians under those countries. It's called the World Watch List. You can check it out on the Open Doors Ministries website. We know that eight out of ten of the top countries, you know, North Korea being the first, uh, most dangerous country for Christians, but eight out of ten of the top ten countries are Islamic countries. They, there's an, an Islamic, pro, uh, you know, oppression. Not only that, you have, you know, the Hindu oppression. You have all these world religions that are oppressing who? Christians. Why are they oppressing Christians? Because of what we stand for. Because of who we serve. Who is our Lord? It's because of Jesus. That's why. And understand who's behind this. It's not Mohammed. It's not the, 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 the leader of the whoever, you know, whoever origin, origined the Hindu religion. It's not those people. It's Satan himself. That's what Jesus tells this church in Smyrna. Understand the origin of your persecution. It is spiritual. It is Satan himself. He is persecuting you. And in fact, Satan was even fueling the Jews to persecute Christians. Remember Paul, who was Saul at the time? 
It was Satan himself that was, that was running Paul's heart to, to go and persecute Christians. And it was Jesus who revealed himself to Paul on that road to Damascus. And he, uh, you know, by a great light, blinded Paul. And he said, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, really? Listen, why are you persecuting who? My people? No, no. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes it personally. He takes your persecution personally. And understand, he loves the persecutor as much as he loves the persecuted. And I know that's hard for us to understand. But Jesus loves the persecutor as much as he loves the persecuted. When you come to Christ, God's love, did you know, never changes? He doesn't love you more because you came to Christ. He loves you the same. He loved you. He loved you. To, that just tells you how much he loves you even while you're yet still a sinner. He loves you so much. You have no idea how much he loves you. And his love never changes for you. Your eternal address changes, but his love stays constant. It is the same. So when we are praying, let us pray for persecutors, but also the persecuted, because Jesus loves the persecutors. And in fact, we're, we're, we're reading about all the time about um, Many, many Muslims coming to Christ through dreams and visions and all these sorts of things. Why? Because Jesus loves them. You have to understand, he knows who the enemy really is. And it is not made with flesh and blood. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, it is spiritual in origin. He's telling the Jews, understand where this is coming from. Don't start to hate people. You've got to love people. Even though people are the physical, tangible, uh, you know, force in front of you producing these kinds of circumstances in your life, don't start hating people. Uh, I see on Facebook very, very much Christians hating people. You see people hammering on this group or that group who says something about, you know, something about, and I see the same, you know, there's obviously the anti-Christian uh, premise that's happening. But listen, Christians should never play that game. It's not that we don't have a voice. It's that we use our voice wisely. We use our words wisely. We, we don't, we, you can't counter, you, you can't fight a battle by bashing people. That doesn't work. Listen, in fact, that puts a, even a more disdain in people's mouth for, or in people's minds and hearts for Jesus. Be careful of the battle that you engage in. Understand the origin. Jesus saying the origin is the devil himself. And in fact, this persecuted church ought not become bitter in this situation, but they ought to continue to love the culture, love the people, not the culture, not the, not the um, things that were going on there, but to love the people in the culture. You and I have to love the people in the culture, even though things are growing dimmer by the day. We must love the people. Paul is telling this church, listen, the person that is producing this is Satan himself. He tells them there, you are poor, but you're rich. You see, the tribulation that was happening to these Christians was not only physical, but it was economical. What happened is if you were a Christian in this culture, you wouldn't be able to work. You couldn't get a job. If people found out you were a Christian, you were blacklisted. You were not... People wouldn't contribute to anything you were doing. They didn't want to support Christianity at all. And so they rejected many people. They rejected many of those who uh, 
you know, they couldn't feed their families. They had no ability to, to produce any kind of uh, money to, to, to su support themselves. So they were blacklisted. They were poor. Jesus knows what it's like to be poor. He became poor for you and I. But notice what it says there. He says, but you're rich. What does he mean? Oh, you don't understand, Jesus. I don't have money to buy food today. I'm poor. Listen, you may be poor physically, but what matters is you are rich spiritually. That's what he's telling these people. Don't forget that we just went through this in, in, in our study through the book of Ephesians, right? That we are rich in Christ, that we have an inheritance that, is, that dwarfs any kind of earthly wealth that you could think of. I mean, you could put all the money in the world in one room if you could do that, and, you know, it'd be handed over to you, and you're, you're, you're spiritually poor if you don't have Christ. Christ makes you rich. And in fact, if you live in the premise of whatever he gives to you and you're content in it, you will feel rich. You will sense that richness. But it's when you long for something more. God, you haven't done enough for me. I need more from you. And you start to become greedy in what he's given. That's when you become, that's when you sense your poverty. But I promise you, some of the richest people in the world have nothing materialistic, have nothing to speak of in terms of materialistic wealth. But they have the most important thing, Jesus. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up his physical wealth, if you will. He left heaven. He became physically poor, being clothed in the flesh, so that you could become spiritually rich. He denied himself so that you could experience what he has. And he wants you to experience that. If you're in Christ and you're not experiencing that, it's because you're not receiving it. You've got to receive it. You've got to say, Jesus, I received that, and I want to walk in that. Make me content. Help me to be content in this situation. And circumstantially as well. You know, listen, I'm the first to admit, man, sometimes when I'm going through difficult times, I, I don't feel like I'm spiritually rich. Sometimes I'm saying, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? You're in control. Why don't you do something? And he reminds me, as he is in this passage here, oh, I'm testing you. I want you to see your heart. I, I know what's in your heart. And if I don't put you through a little bit of difficulty, you won't know what's in your heart. So let me show you. And that's what he does here. Notice it's by two commands that Jesus uh, tells this church to be faithful. First, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus is forewarning this church about su this suffering, about future suffering that is about to take place. He's saying, be, be ready. The devil's going to throw some of you in prison, and listen, you're going to be tested for 10 days. Who's doing the testing here? The devil? No, Jesus is. Jesus is doing the testing. Jesus is allowing the enemy to throw these people into prison for the purpose, there's purpose in suffering, for the purpose of testing. He wants them to understand where their heart sits. Some of you don't want to know, but Jesus wants you to know. And he'll, he'll put you through the testing process so that you can know. 
Now, notice here, it says that uh, the devil is going to throw them into prison that they may be tested for a, a specific period of time. For 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Now, there, there are a few different interpretations about what this 10 days could represent. Some believe that this 10 days represents uh, symbolically 10 years of persecution that will happen by way of the Roman emperor Diocletian. He ruled and reigned somewhere around the, the, the latter part of 200 A.D. to the early part of A.D. 311 or so. That's when he stopped reigning. So others believe that it's symbolic of the persecution that was brought by the ten Roman emperors, beginning with Nero in A.D. 67, ending in Diocletian in A.D. 311. And you can read more about that in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a great read about the ten periods of persecution that the church went through during that period of time. Uh, some also believe that, you know, it, it, it's just a, a, a period of time, not necessarily representing any specific time, just a short time. I happen to read the Bible literally. I think when the literal sense makes perfect sense, you make no other sense lest you make nonsense, right? I don't think that we have to look into anything more than what it says. If it says 10 days, then perhaps it means 10 days. Not that it doesn't have relevance to some of these other things. That's great. I mean, there is what we find oftentimes in prophecy, a near fulfillment of prophecy and then a future fulfillment of prophecy. And it very well could be that the near uh, fulfillment of prophecy was a literal 10 days that these Christians would go through. Very well could be that there was a future, you know, fulfillment of prophecy. And perhaps these 10 Roman emperors and the, the persecution that they brought down upon the church, or perhaps it is, uh, dealing with Diocletian and the 10 years of persecution that he brought upon the church. They're not perfect, but there's an illustration. But I like to read the Bible literally, and so I, I take it as that. You can take it for whatever you would like to take it for, but notice the twofold commandment by Jesus. One is negative and one is positive. First it is a do not, then it is a do. Do not be fearful. Do not fear. The do is be faithful. Do not fear, be faithful. These believers are not to fear the persecution that's coming. Why? Why wouldn't they? And in fact, I hear Christians today that are preparing for the persecution. Jesus says, do not fear. He says, do not worry about it. Don't, don't, you know, don't worry about what will happen to you. You let me deal with that in that moment. Don't sit there and fret over what could happen or what you know, don't worry about it. Do not fear. We don't operate in the spirit of fear. We've not been given the spirit of fear. We need to operate in a spirit of trust. How could these believers, though, in this situation, being in the church that's being persecuted in the present tense, seeing that many, many Christians have already been persecuted unto death, how could you not be fearful? <laughs> They were about to suffer far more than anyone could. Jesus gives us a principle, I think, found in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. And, and, and the principle, I think, is really how we live out this idea of not being fearful. And it's, it's not, not a matter of not having fear. It's a matter of the object of your fear. Here's what I mean. Look at Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you 
whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And are not, are not one of them is forgotten before God? Even, why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. The principle that Jesus speaks of in this passage is a matter of the object of your fear. It's not that you're not going to fear. It's who you are going to fear. The Bible speaks a whole lot about fearing God and the fact that it is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and that it really, as, we, as God becomes the object of our fear, how that shapes our life, how that directs our path. Fear, understand, is of the Lord in some context. Fear is also can be sinful. It depends upon how you use it. What do I mean? There is something instinctly put inside of most people. I'll say most people because some people uh, God just didn't give that portion to. But some people, most people have the, the, the you know, they have the, the physical fear of walking down a dark alley in a bad part of town at night. There's just something instinctively put in there that that is not a good idea. That's a God-given fear. He put that in your heart for a reason. He uses that emotion. It's something that he put in you. It's not necessarily a result of sin because the Bible tells us to fear God, to tremble before him. It's emotion that he's given us. We have to use it correctly. And if it's used correctly, it's meant to save us, as in the idea of walking down the alley, right? But, but oftentimes what happens is we, be, we use that fear in an incorrect way, and we start to fear what people think of us, what they'll say about us. If we stand for the Lord, what that will mean for us. Jesus says the principle is this. Make sure you fear the right person. Make sure you fear God and not man because the fear of man is a snare. It will hinder you. It will paralyze you. It will stop you from being who God wants you to be. Do not fear man. Don't, don't let that. If, if you have a fear of man today, the right process is to say, Lord, I need you to change my heart in this. I need, again, it's not something that we can do in and of ourselves. We need Jesus to help us with this. But, but to, for him to be the one that we fear more. If, if fear ceases you from speaking, then you fear people more than you do God. Because the, the command is pretty, pretty clear. Go and make disciples. He's called you to speak. He's commanded you to speak. Doesn't mean... Uh, that you do it all the time. There's a time and a place for these things. But if you have a hard time doing that, then perhaps your fear is on the wrong person. Your fear may be on people rather than the Lord. Jesus is telling these guys, do not fear. It doesn't mean that what's going on isn't fearful. It doesn't mean that it's not difficult. What it means is that don't get your eyes on man. Get your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He goes on here. He tells them. He couples this negative command with a positive command. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. This is the crux of what Jesus really wants to say to any church in any age. Be faithful unto death. Because death is what we consider the finality of this life. And so when we think about death, we think there's just a finality with death that, you know, when we die that, you know, there's just something about that that, that per, makes us want to live. And so we will do 
whatever we have to do at all cost to not die. There are some things that are worth dying for. There are some things that are worth giving up your life for. Jesus would be at the top of that list, folks. If he is Lord of your life, then you must be willing to be faithful even unto death. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Even unto death. Your faith in Jesus is manifest in those, in those moments in life that are literally life-threatening. Your faith in Jesus Christ becomes a reality in those moments. You really understand what you truly believe in, in, in life-threatening situations. Do I really believe what I say? There are opportunities, various different Christians have been given these opportunities to renounce, to denounce Jesus Christ. Denounce him or die. You have a choice. You have a thought process in that. Should I do that or should I not? And many have not, and they were killed. How could God be in that? Why would Jesus allow that? First and foremost, Jesus didn't produce that. But secondly, he calls you to love him more than even your own life. Now, some people call that radical, you know, fanaticalism. I call it biblical Christianity because it's in the Bible. And it, he's saying that right here. He's saying, love me unto death. If you love your father and your, lover, your mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. What, what he's saying is, is if you love your own life more than you love me, then I'm not your Lord. You're your Lord. Now, is he asking us to go out and get ourselves killed? That's what some people do. I don't think that's smart. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying if you're, if you're put in a situation where you are, your life is called upon and you either denounce Christ or you die, why would you denounce Christ? This is temporary. That is eternal. There is no comparison, folks. If you fear the right person, it will produce the right response. If you don't fear the right person, it will produce the wrong response. Does that mean you can never be saved? No, that's not what it means. The point is this, though. Don't deny him. Don't deny him. Be faithful. Be faithful. There are many, many brothers and sisters in Christ that have spilt their blood in the name of Jesus. Willfully. And we ought to be willing to do the same. Again, that's not radicalism. That's biblical. That's what the Bible says. How do I love Jesus like that? Get to know him. Understand what he's done for you. If very, Dan and I were just talking about this earlier today. You know, it's, it isn't until we really get our eyeballs on Jesus and understand how he interacts with us and what he's done for us that we can really do that on a horizontal level and interacting with other people or even in our own lives. How can I forgive that person when they've done that to me? Just remember how Jesus has forgiven you, all the things that you've done. And in fact, he loved you with a love that was willing to die for you even while you were doing it. How can you not forgive that person 
it, that will be the answer no matter what it is in your life. If you get your eyes on Jesus, that will be the answer. How can I not? How can I not give up my life? He gave up his. Unless, of course, I don't love him the way that I say that I do. You know, and, and that's really the question. Notice there's a reward for those who endure to the end. And that is a command in Scripture, folks, like over and over again. Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. It's not for the person who has the appearance of Christianity, but then, as Jesus says in the parable of the sowers, when the heat comes down, they scatter and they flee. That wasn't genuine. The genuine, a genuine faith will produce a, a, a willingness to, at all costs, stand for Jesus. A genuine faith. doesn't mean you don't f falter and fail at times. But it will, you will endure to the end if you are genuine. And, and there is a reward for that. There, there is, Paul, or John says, there is a crown of glory. That crown of glory in the Greek, it is specific word. It's, it, there's different crowns in the Bible. This specific crown that's being spoken of is a Stephanos crown. It literally was a wreath like crown that was given to athletes who won a race. It was like the Greek, you know, wreath that they would put on people's heads. That's the kind, it's a victor's crown. That's the kind of crown that will be given for those who are faithful even unto death. They will be given the victor's crown. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote about this in James chapter 1, verse 12. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he, is when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus goes on in verse 11 here to give us another reward. He says, those to the one who, in, who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is a reference, the second death, a reference to the great white throne judgment that is, again, representative of eternal damnation. You won't be hurt by the second death. You won't be judged in the great white throne judgment and hurled into hell. You won't be if you're a conqueror. If you're a conqueror, it's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 through 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is hell, and yes, it's a reality. And many people don't want to believe in it, but the Bible continually speaks about this torment, about this eternal torment, about this lake of fire. Well, why would a loving God do that? I don't know. I'm not God. But what I know is why would, a, why would he save us the way that he did? Why would he do a lot of things the way that he does? Because he's God and he knows what he's doing. And one day I will understand that. I promise you there is nobody in heaven that's saying, God, you are unjust in what you've done. In fact, there's nobody in hell that was going to say, God, you're unjust in everything that you've done. Every knee will bow eventually. They will understand the reality of who God is and what he's done and what they've done. There will be that reality. But understand, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go there. It's a choice. He so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. He's given an invitation over and over and over again. And we want the people that don't like the invitation want to worry about the, the one tribe in you know, Africa that's never heard the gospel and they want to focus on that. How about you just focus on yourself and about the gospel that's been presented to you and you, you let God worry about that. 
but you focus on yourself and you, you, you ask yourself the question, am I saved? Have I really made Jesus Lord of my life? Have I given myself over to him? Am I really more than a conqueror? Not in your flesh, in Christ. That's what the scripture says. Am I more than a conqueror? In Christ. You must be in Christ to be a conqueror. It's the only way to conquer. He is the conqueror. And if you put your faith in him, you will receive the Stephanos crown that he has died to give. Finally, we come to the exhortation. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus writing to the church of Smyrna here says, Dear church, be faithful. I know times are tough. I know things are looking down. But just keep looking up and trusting me. And I'll see you through these things. Keep fighting. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't give up. Jesus is reminding us that he is the first and the last. Listen, he is Lord over all. He is Lord over every situation that you're in. And he knows what he's doing in it. Just trust him. And that's easy to say. Even in a season of uh, testing in my own life, I say, Lord, sometimes, what are you doing, Lord? Why are you doing that? But I have reminded so faithful, that God is so faithful to me to bring this to mind and say, listen, just trust him in your circumstances and your situation. The testing is for a purpose. It's to reveal the heart, to make you more like Jesus. He knows what he's doing in that. So you just trust him and be faithful to him. I want to end with this thought. Remember I said, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, I write. That angel of the church is probably a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna some 50 to 60 years after, um, after this, you know, during, after Jesus had lived. He was a disciple of John. John had probably appointed him as, into the pastorate there in Smyrna. It's interesting that Polycarp is one of the most famous martyrs in the, in, in, that has ever lived in the history of the world. Why? Polycarp was probably the person that received this letter to be faithful in the midst of persecution. And he was faithful. In fact, when the edict came down that you were to declare Caesar as Lord, Polycarp would not do it. He said, I can't do it. There is only one Lord. And he was brought before the proconsulate there in Smyrna, and he was, and the proconsulate was pleading with Polycarp, please, Polycarp, will you just declare him as Lord? You don't have to mean it. You don't have to mean that Caesar is Lord. Just throw some incense on there and just say the words. Who cares? Polycarp said, I cannot do that. Those words could never leave my mouth. And in fact, during that pleading, it's said traditionally that there were words spoken that no man spoke, that it was God that was speaking. And he said, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. The proconsulate asked him again, Polycarp, will you please just declare Caesar as Lord and we can release you? And he said these words, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Tradition says that Polycarp stood freely upon a stake. No ropes, no nails. They, supposedly the Roman soldiers forgot them. He stood in the midst of a fire 
and the flames did not touch him. And when the soldiers saw that the flames were shooting over him and not touching him, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they took a spear, they plunged it into his heart, and the blood that spilled out of his body extinguished the fire, and there he sat. And many, many people came to Christ because of that. It's been said over and over and over again, and it is true that the, 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 the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. From day one, the church was being persecuted. Jesus Christ being the establishment, the head of the church, he was persecuted. Why do you not think you will be? You will be persecuted in some way. Be faithful, just like Jesus was, just like many of the saints that we know and we read about are. And listen, God has a reward for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for just this reminder today, God, of your faithfulness, Lord, in the midst of persecution and trial. We know that we know where the hand lies, Lord. Who is, who is the person that is responsible for the trials that we might go through in life? But we also know that you're in control of those things and that you're allowing them for a purpose. We ask you today, Lord, to just strengthen our hearts, Lord, to help us, each and every one of us in this place today, Lord, to, to, be, to just examine our own hearts, Lord. Ask ourselves the hard questions. Am I willing to be faithful even unto death? It's a difficult question to answer when the circumstances are not presented because we know that you will give us the faith to do whatever is necessary in the moment. But Lord, we pray that that would be the case. And if not, Lord, would you strengthen us today? Would you give us a resolve that says, always only Jesus, no one else, nothing else, only Jesus, that I will live my life for him and him alone. I will not let anything else get in the way. So today, God, we just want to confess that to you. We ask you to move mightily in our midst today. For those who are suffering, who are dealing with hardships in their lives, Lord, that you remind them today that you are the first and the last, the one who died and who rose again from the dead, and that you are Lord over that circumstance, and that there is purpose in it. So even though we may never ever see the purpose behind it, God, that we just remain faithful through it. So strengthen your body in a special way today, Lord. And we just thank you for who you are. We praise your name, Lord. We want to also just, Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, watching online, listening to the radio, Lord, that you just cause them, Lord, to bow their knee to you, to declare that Jesus is the Lord. Turn away from their sin, Lord, to turn to you, to repent, to literally turn away and go the opposite direction through a simple prayer, Lord, of a heart confession to you that declares that I am a sinner, I need you, Jesus, that you died and rose again from the dead for me, and I'm putting my faith in you. A simple prayer like that, declaring you Lord and Savior of my life, can bring the forgiveness that we need to change our eternal address. And so we just pray for your spirit to lead as only you can, that you convict the hearts as you desire, Lord. You comfort and bring peace. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. We honor you. We praise you in Jesus' name. 
Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.